Well, good evening, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome. Um, I'm Mark Steiner, and we're here with uh, Christopher Leonard to talk about his book, The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business. Uh, and I'm glad you all came out tonight. I'm glad you're here tonight. We are doing this course with the Enoch Pratt Library and our friends at Food Water Watch uh, and the River Keepers, the Coast Keeper on the Eastern Shore, um, to put this thing together for tonight. This is uh, being taped. Uh, we're going to have it uh, broadcast uh, on our show here and on the Eastern Shore and around the nation and world on the Internet. Uh, and um, so we're going to encourage you all to participate, whether you've read the book or not, once you get the conversation rolling. And the microphone will be over there to your left uh, that you can go in and uh, have your questions, ask questions and create, help create the dialogue. So I'm going to begin it officially now. just want to tidy that stuff up, then we can begin. Okay, here we go. So we want to welcome you here to the Enoch Pratt Library, and uh, as a disclaimer, I'm on the board here, which is uh, an honor, actually, not a disclaimer that I'm ashamed of. I love being on the board here. Christopher Leonard wrote this book um, uh, that's an amazing book. He's been covering agribusiness for a long time with the Associated Press. His work has appeared in Fortune, Slate, New York Times. He's now a fellow at the New America Foundation in Washington, D.C., uh, and wrote this book um, that looks at where what has happened to our meat industry. It's called The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business. And uh, Chris Leonard, welcome to Baltimore. And Enoch Pratt, good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. <clears throat> so let's take a step, a couple of steps backwards. The, the first step backwards is to talk about this family. I mean, clearly you wrote this book and you have a passion for the subject or you built one doing this book and also, in some senses, a passion for this family that built this business out of nothing. So take us back to the 30s. Yeah, you bet. So the, the family you're talking about is, is the Tyson family out of, out of Arkansas. And as a little bit of background, I, I really wanted to write a book about the modern meat system today, how it operates, what it's really like, how it works from the inside, what it looks like on the ground. And I felt the best way to do that was to write the story of Tyson Foods, which is the nation's biggest meat company. They're emblematic of the modern system as it operates today, and they really kind of pioneered the system that exists today. So I felt like they were a great way to tell the story, and you know, the kind of truths that are there hold true for other companies you might have heard of, like Purdue, I think, is big in Maryland, and firms like that. Our, our local Tyson. Have you heard of them? Yeah. Well, I have heard of them. Okay. So... Um, it, and it's an amazing story, and it's kind of not one that I really expected to find, to be honest. The, the, the family that was at the heart of this, when you go back to 1929, it was the depths of the Great Depression. The rural economy was a disaster, and uh, you know it was the Dust Bowl, there had been this huge crash on Wall Street, and there was this young guy named John Tyson who was uh, basically kicked off his family farm because it was collapsing like so many. He ends up in this town, which I lived nearby in, in early 2000s, this town called Springdale, Arkansas. It wasn't that big in 2003 when I was there, and it was a lot smaller in 1929. This guy was not at the center of any kind of economic world at all. He was on the periphery, but he really knew how to work hard. And what he started doing was shipping vegetables. He had one thing, and that was a car. So he started shipping these vegetables, and soon he was shipping chickens. And back at this time, chickens were kind of this specialty item. It was an expensive meat. It was kind of like lobster today. And he would drive all the way from Springdale to these cities, in, you know, like Chicago and St. Louis, and sell birds for a decent profit. 
And over time, he, he slowly started to build, almost on an improvisational basis, he starts to build this new kind of chicken company. Because what he really wants more than anything is a steady supply of birds to take north to sell. And to do that, he builds this hatchery so he can hatch birds. And then he starts delivering these birds. He, he has his own farm, but he delivers birds to other farms where farmers will raise them under contract with him. For him. For him. And then uh, he builds a feed mill to mix the feed to give the birds and eventually builds a slaughterhouse. And, and so what you see is this kind of tightly orchestrated machine of all the pieces owned by one company, the feed mill, the hatchery, the, the trucking lines, the birds. And you know the, the economic word for that is vertically integrated, where one company kind of controls all that. And it was really sort of built out of necessity in the time. And John Tyson was one of the first people to do that in the U.S. I mean, you have this uh, great quote in the book here. Let me just find it. Because I think it, you say this is after he got that small loan and went off and bought these chickens and comes back to create this uh, this world. Uh, and you said that how Don oversaw it all and and had this $75,000 that he had paid and went off and bought these chickens and said, and by the end of the first day, they slaughtered and cleaned 3,000 birds, birds they'd hatched, birds they'd fed, birds they'd hauled to the killing floor. With the slaughterhouse in place, Tyson stood to make a profit from every link in the long chain. So it, what, you, what you're describing here is he helped create this whole idea of this vertically integrated industry, but on a really small scale at that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and to understand how revolutionary it was, you know, let's let's look at a, a town where you would raise pigs, another popular meat at the time. All of these pieces of the chain would be independently owned businesses. I mean, even in Iowa today, you'll still have independent feed mills, independent slaughterhouses, independent breeders that breed the animals. John Tyson, on a very small level, like you're saying, built a completely different kind of model. So, so this is the the raw beginning, but but what's fascinating here is how this actually. How, how this was built, he and his son, Don yeah. Tyson, yeah. Um, who really was the one who kind of exploded the company. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you talk about him being <clears throat> somebody who was ahead of his time. He saw what was coming yeah. and decided to build this business a yeah. certain way. Absolutely. John Tyson, who we've been talking about, was a smart business guy. Don Tyson was a genius, and I really do mean that with like capital G genius. Uh, have you seen that movie There Will Be Blood about the old school like oil? Oh yeah, I, I, right. pic I picture right. it like that. Right. I mean, it's you, you've got this little boy who who from the age of four was working with his dad, sitting side by side with his dad, sitting at the family room table at night when they were writing the ledgers for the company, mixing the chicken feed, delivering the birds. He grew up, Don Tyson grew up in this world, in this environment, and learned every detail. Very astute young man, very smart young man, and, and grew up in this business with his father. But what was really remarkable is what Don Tyson did with the company after his father passed away in 1967. That's when Don is this young guy in his early 30s. He inherits this firm that is a vertically integrated poultry firm. But like you were saying, it's not giant. I mean, there were like dozens of these firms that had kind of sprung up throughout the South, and this was just one of many. And it wasn't that remarkable in terms of how it measured up against its competitors. But Don Tyson took that seed and grew what ultimately became the world's biggest meat company, and, and a company that transformed, and, or rather helped transform 
the way hogs are raised, like literally transform the entire hog market, and is 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 working today to transform the cattle market in fundamental ways. And and I think the reason Don Tyson was able to do this is that he had two really core capabilities. He had an incredibly sharp tactical brain. The way he grew was by buying out other companies. But that wasn't an easy thing. It was like playing a casino lottery every single day because if you paid too much for a company, you would owe a lot of money on that. And and it's important to note that this poultry industry in the early days was very volatile. Prices would go up and down very quickly, and we can kind of talk about why. But there, it was a boom and bust type economy, and if you paid too much for a competitor, you would be loaded down with debt when that down cycle hit and go out of business. It was hard to do it right, but Don Tyson knew how to do it right. But then more importantly than that, I think, was this sort of visionary quality he had back in the 60s and 70s when he realized that he was operating this machine that could make meat more cheaply than anybody else. A pound of chicken, the price of the a pound of chicken just dropped precipitously over a couple of decades. And what he realized was that made it all but inevitable that fast food restaurants would have to start serving chickens. Back in the 1960s, fast food was built on burgers, right? Right. And what he saw was that chicken had to find a place on the menu because it was so cheap. And he beat down the door of McDonald's and other firms until they finally relented and put chicken on the menu. And that was one of these revolutions that made chicken what it is today, which is the cheapest meat and the most popular meat in America. So and the interesting thing about this family and what they built here was that they, very, I mean, very early on, um, they took on everybody. They took on the farmers. They took on the unions. They took on the United States Department of Agriculture's Packers and Stockyards Act yeah. and used it against them. And I mean, just tell them that story because he really, they were ruthless. I mean, he just took everyone on and left a lot of things in his way. Talk, I mean, that to build this company. Absolutely. And he wasn't just having whiskey with the farmers and laughing. Well, he was doing that and then, <laughs> and then putting him out of business later. I mean, lots of, lot, they, lots of good stuff happened. But there is a ruthlessness to this company and to the system. And I do want to get us back to Springdale, Arkansas in the 1930s. Yes. It was a hard place. Nobody gave the Tysons anything. You know, they earned what they had and they were there was the threat of going out of business all the time and I think that that really fed into this absolutely relentless and ruthless drive to first keep down costs in their company and then beat out competitors any any time they could so there there was not a lot of sentiment at the heart of this and, and another example of that is that as he as he matured through business Don Tyson would make the executives below him compete with each other constantly it was a system that kind of mirrored the the rough beginnings he had, and and I think that that thinking really permeates this company as it exists today, as a giant multinational corporation. That same mentality is still there, and it is also in Tyson's competitors today. And uh, you, you know, you mentioned fighting the USDA and fighting the regulators. You you can see this constant thread through the whole history of Tyson Foods in that it was sort of a new creature under the sun. It was a vertically integrated poultry firm. And it grew and grew and grew and became giant. And then the U.S. regulators tried to step in 
and regulated under these tough antitrust laws called the Packers and Sockyards Act, this law, right? Because there was a case where Tyson and a couple competitors put a bunch of farmers out of business because these farmers wanted to organize to stand up for their interests. And the federal government sued Tyson under the Packers and Stockyards Act, and Tyson said, we're not a packer. We're a poultry dealer. And you didn't put the word poultry dealer anywhere in the Packers and Stockyards Act. And they, you know the USDA was kind of caught with their pants down and lost this key legal case because of that. And I think what it points out is that every step along the way, Tyson was able to exploit these loopholes all the time. For example, they paid taxes under a sort of tax structure built for small farmers because technically the company was a family farm. They produced food. They were more or less owned by the family, the Tyson family. So they, they were very adept and very smart at, at using loopholes when they could find them and using that as a way to grow very, very aggressively. I think it's important to talk about here what we talked about before we walked in here, which was that you're a business reporter. Mm -hmm. That's what you've done for a long time, yeah. covering agribusiness. You started this book not, A, not expecting to find what you found, nor coming up with the conclusions you came up with. I mean, you didn't, as you said to me, you, you didn't start this book as um, an anti-big ag crusader. You were looking at company, but things began to unfold as you delved deeper and deeper into it. Yeah, no question. I mean, I started this book not with the intention of attacking anybody, but just to figure out what the heck was going on. I mean, if there's one primary motivator behind writing this book, it was to figure out what was going on. Because the, the root of it is, is that I'm this business reporter in the middle of the Midwest, which by its nature means I'm writing about big agribusiness. And I keep bumping up against this system, which is like an awe-inspiring and amazing system. I mean, there's nothing like walking into a giant factory farm chicken house for the first time, seeing 75,000 birds on the ground, the ammonia stings your eyes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. You've been there, right? It's <laughs> yes, like, wow, right. it's amazing. And I, I wanted to learn more about it the more I saw it. But what really struck me was the, the power relationships here. As I started digging just a little bit deeper into it, you go out to these small towns with these gigantic industrialized facilities where the farmers are all contract farmers of that kind we just talked about. And it, it struck me the remarkable amount of power these firms had. I mean, we're talking about Fortune 100 companies, some of the biggest transnational corporations in the world, which by and large operate in these tiny rural communities. And, they, you know, there's an old rule, when you get power, you exercise the power you have. And I was seeing the effects of that everywhere I went. And so that's what got me to really want to dig in and understand how does this system work and how did we come to be where we are today? And I think that that's the story that's in the book. And I, I you know, we were talking earlier, I, I am at the point today where I think the system is dysfunctional. And I think too few companies have too much power. And I don't think it's good for people that raise meat. And I don't think it's good for people who eat meat. But that's a conclusion I came to after years of, of reporting on this. And I, so let's go to the beginning, and the Yendels is where you start the book. Yeah. After the prologue, and it, the description of the Yendels and what they find with the birds that they got from Tyson. Yeah. And what happened to them. If you want to, you can describe it, not to read it, or you can describe it, but I think that's a good to get a sense of what you open with and where you take us. Yeah, and when I talk about getting out in these small towns and seeing um, this incredible imbalance of power, 
the Yandels is really where it started for me. I go down to this little town called Waldron, Arkansas in 2004 because I hear there's a problem on these contract farms. And here's how contract farming works. You'll have a guy like me who lives in town. I might borrow $500,000, today maybe as much as $2 million. I'm going to build a giant footprint of industrial chicken houses. And then I'm going to sign a contract with a company like Purdue or Tyson. And they're going to deliver the chickens to my farm. They own the chickens the entire time. They deliver the feed to the farm. They send veterinarians by to check on the animals. And I'm basically there to make sure nothing goes wrong. I, I make sure the feed lines are working. And then Tyson or Purdue will come back and pick up the animals and take them to slaughter. That's what modern farming has become. What was happening in Waldron is that this couple, Jerry and Kanita Yandel and others, were getting delivered sick chickens. These birds would show up and just start dying right away. They had some really hideous disease or there was some sort of problem at the hatchery. It's frankly never been made clear what was the matter with these birds, but it was, it was happening to the Andels and their neighbors. And after just three flocks of having birds like this that were dying so rapidly, the Yandels were driven into bankruptcy. The reason why being, they have a fixed mortgage payment on their farm, right? That doesn't change. But when the birds die en masse, it means they're making half as much money for each flock. Now, the Yandels... Jerry and Kennedy Andell are folks that grew up in Scott County, Arkansas. They are not strangers to working seven days a week. Uh, they had a complex of, of over a dozen chicken houses. They built a stable middle-class life, and it just took three bad flocks of chicken to put them into bankruptcy. And it was not their fault. And yet it happened, and it was kind of remarkable. They never contacted an attorney. They never felt like there was recourse and uh, they live in a small trailer today and, uh, you know, are kind of surviving off dis disability payments and the like. But that, that was a story that really opened up my eyes to just how powerless farmers are and how much control these companies have. And that's where it started. And I, I will be honest, I got even more disturbed from there as I dug into how this was really working. Could I give one small example? I don't mean to... No, no, I want you to. Go ahead, I'm, I'm sorry. I kind of can't shut up when I start talking you're, about this stuff. You're not here to shut up. Okay. <laughs> so I go down to this little town, and first of all, I, I, I've been a reporter for a long time now. Everything I know about working with anonymous sources, I learned from working with chicken farmers. I mean, these are people who would not want their neighbor to know you were on their property. And one of the key reasons why is here's how companies like Purdue and Tyson pay farmers for their hard work. A farmer like Jerry and Kanita would raise a flock of chickens. Tyson would pick them up and slaughter them. And I figured these farmers would get paid like every other farmer, kind of on a price-per-pound basis, right? What these companies do is they take all the farmers in an area that deliver chickens in a given week, and then they rank them against each other based on how efficiently they fattened up the birds on the rations of feed these companies deliver. Now, the companies have all the information on their side. They know exactly how much feed went to that farm. They know exactly how much weight the birds gained. They know how long they were there. And they tally up the results, and then they send out a settlement letter to these farmers. And the farmers are paid based on how they rank within the tournament. And the settlement sheet, I'm just going to say as a business reporter, is the most offensive thing I've ever seen in my life in terms of the opacity and the lack of information these farmers get. You get this ranking, 1 to 20, and then there's the name Christopher Leonard. None of the other competitors are named. It's just a white field. I mean, it might as well be generated uh, just on a random basis. I mean, I know it's probably not, but as far as the farmer knows, it is. 
And, and your ranking in this tournament determines whether you're going to be in business or not. The top performers get a bonus. The bottom performers are economically penalized to the point where they will lose money on that flock. They will have worked for six weeks and lose money on it. And the key thing, too, to understand here is that it is a zero-sum tournament. If these farmers all did fantastic in a given week, they all beat the industry benchmarks, they all do great, it doesn't matter. The top half take their winnings from the bottom half. So you are perpetually making the farmers fight each other each cycle. And this is an economic way, not just to divide and conquer rural communities, but to really shift a lot of the risk and the volatility down to the farm level. And it's, it's systematic. It's, it's baked into the system. This is how Purdue operates. This is how Tyson operates. So it's just one, one small example of what these companies do once they get this kind of power. One of the things that I, I've read what some of the industry has said when your book came out um, and kind of attacking the book and attacking you. And one of the things they said, and they said, look, no, you have it all wrong, that the fact that the industry is consolidated is why the prices are so low. The fact the industry is consolidated is how the farmers survive. Mm -hmm. They couldn't survive without our chickens, without our pigs, without whatever it is they're growing for us. And that's the reason this works. It's the American way. It now works in a system that gets food cheaply to the supermarket for people to eat. You know what's so scary? It is the American way, and that's why I wrote this book, okay? And I think a lot of people can relate to this kind of system I'm writing about. We're, you're bringing up a super important point. When I talk about this is what companies do when they get this kind of power, I need to back up for a second and talk about consolidation in this business, right? right? We've been talking this whole time about how the meat system was industrialized, how it was vertically integrated, and how they figured out how to raise these chickens like widgets on a factory line and really systematize this and make it efficient. You know, that's arguably a really good thing. I know a lot of people disagree with me on that. There are environmental consequences and other things, but it has made meat cheaper. But there is a key thing that's different from that, which is consolidation, which is the fact that we let these industrialized firms buy out all of their competitors. So in, in 1977, the chicken market, about half of the chicken market was controlled by roughly 38 companies. Okay, 38 companies were competing with each other, fighting you know, elbow to elbow for the market. Now about you know, four companies control that, but really two companies control 40% of the entire national market in chicken. Two companies. And in cattle, four companies control 85% of the market. In pork, four companies control 65% of the market. They've become monopolies. I mean, this, this, the technical term is they are oligopolies, right? But there is no real competition in this business anymore. And when that happens, these companies have the ability to rewrite the rules in their own self-interest. That's just common basic sense. They have a lot more bargaining power out there in rural America. They have changed the contracts of these poultry farmers to benefit themselves more. Same thing is happening with hog farmers. So the consolidation has had massive negative consequences. And these lobbying groups, like the American Meat Institute and the National Chicken Council, are the paid spokespeople of the giant monopolists. That's just a fact. And they can't come out and say, 
yeah, the business is, is fundamentally dysfunctional because our clients are too rich and too large and have too much power over the market. They can't say that. So what they're trying to say is that this massive consolidation somehow benefits consumers and farmers, which flies in the face of all the available evidence today and all the available evidence over history of what happens when you let competition die in an industry. And it's important to, again, tease out the two points. I'm not saying that industrializing the meat system is bad on its own. I'm not saying that that's the root of all evil or that even vertical integration on its own is the root of all evil. But what we've done is we've let these industrialized firms buy out all their competitors and become monopolies. That's where a lot of the negative consequences happen. Incidentally, that's why you can put a couple like Jerry and Kanita Yandel out of business and it's like a tree falls, falling in the forest with no one to hear it because they live in a town where there's basically one choice of, of, a, of a company to do business with because we've seen a sweeping wave of, of mergers to where the local choices have been eliminated. So they don't have anybody else to go do business with when Tyson puts them out of business. I think that, I mean, that, that's part of the whole story in the book as well is you kind of build the case almost like a mystery novel about the farmers at one point in a more free market system were able to bargain about the prices of their chicken, where they were going to take it, who were they going to sell it to, who was going to buy what. And that's what, that's part of what was destroyed. Right. You know, one of the big reasons I'm a big lefty and socialist is because I believe in open and competitive markets, right? <laughs> and, and I believe in transparent markets where you can get a transparent price for your product. The meat system we have today is characterized by opaque systems of contracts instead of open and competitive systems of transparent prices. Could I give like a small example? Yeah, please. So the hog industry, you know, back in the 70s, even more recently, the way it would work is you'd have a hog farmer that raised a bunch of animals, and when it came time to sell, they would take them to a local weighing station and, and, and sell them and bargain, and there was a market price. There was literally a transparent market price, like a share of IBM. It went up and down every day. It was determined by millions of buyers and sellers competing in the marketplace. And that farmer would go to the weighing station and, of course, bargain with the local buyer, but it was all based on this transparent market price. Well, we saw a tremendous change in the hog market during the 80s and 90s whereby the independent system was replaced by a chickenized system, vertically integrated contract producers. When that happens, you're not selling your animals on an open market anymore. You're selling them to a company under an opaque contract. That means the price is not determined by this vigorous buying and selling and transparent prices. It's determined by how well you can bargain with a big company and there is a tremendous dissymmetry of information. You don't know what your neighbor's getting paid because the contracts are opaque. And the company sure knows what your neighbor's getting paid, I guarantee you. So you're trying to bargain with somebody that's got all the cards and they can see what they're doing and plus there are fewer options with whom you can bargain. So, you know, the death of transparent markets is one of the things that leads to this sort of encroachment of, of power and sort of the erosion of rights and choice for farmers who raise meat. I'm going to be able to have a chance to get up here and also ask some questions. The mic is over there, and I'm going to so you please get up and and and, and join the conversation. Um, the mic is over there to the left, and maybe we can I'll move that out of the way so we can see you or you can see them. Um, 
But there's a few things to, to, to raise here. I think that, that the stuff that was just really eye-opening to me that I never thought about in the book. Um, and one is Bill Hefferman and Harold Breimer. Yeah. That, that I mean, it was just that was an amazing chapter in terms of what these men, in, dis, what one man discovered about the other man and what they said about this industry many years ago and the other man who followed it for 30, 40 years as an ag researcher. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. These are two ag economists, and I'm so fortunate to have met both of them. And I'll be honest, I was a young reporter for the Columbia Daily Tribune when I met this 88-year-old ag economist named Harold Breimeyer, who, I'm this young guy, and he starts talking to me about ag monopolies and corporate titans and all this stuff and power, and I just have no idea what he's talking about. Back in 1965, Harold Breimeyer was this really well-respected ag economist. He was one of these guys. He helped literally write some of the first farm policy with FDR. And he wrote this incredible book called, I think it's called Freedom. Individual Freedom and Economic Organization of Agriculture. Individual Freedom and the Economic Organization of Agriculture. agriculture. Not surprisingly, it wasn't a bestseller. I mean, it had a great title, but (laughs) it wasn't a bestseller. And what he was saying in that book in 1965 was, look, people, we've got these, there's a change happening, and it's best understood through the poultry companies that are vertically integrated. It's going to fundamentally redraw power structures in rural America. And he said, be careful. Don't let the worst outcome happen, which would be these vertically integrated companies buying out all their competitors. To get really wonky, don't let the vertically integrated companies start integrating horizontally because then they're going to have so much power that they'll virtually be able to dictate price and consumers will lose choice. And, you know, Breimeyer was somewhat incorrect in his prediction in that the industry became far more consolidated than he ever thought it would be. He thought we'd have still dozens of poultry companies, and we, we just don't. He thought that was dangerous. Right. He thought that was dangerous. I mean, the quote you have in the book is great here. He said, Breimeyer ended his book with a warning. He said, vertical integration alone wasn't a problem, but it would become toxic if companies like Tyson were allowed to buy their competitors and gain broad market power. To use the language of an economist, he said the real danger lay in the convergence of vertical and horizontal integration. And I mean, and these, and then it was um, Hefferman who started doing these decade-long studies yeah. of farmers that truly amazing. Yeah. So Hefferman then is this young guy who's an acolyte of of Harold Breimeyer, and Hefferman has written this incredible study that spans. 40 years in Louisiana. And what he did was he questioned chicken farmers down there. Union Parish, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, Union Parish. And he's asking questions of these chicken farmers that nobody else is asking. He's asking about their power relationships. You know, how happy are you with your company? How much choice do you have of whom to work with? How are you being treated? And he tracks these results over 40 years. And what you see is that as competition dies away and as these firms consolidate, life becomes worse and worse and worse for the chicken farmers in Union Parish. It is just this clear line between consolidation and worsening conditions in these small towns. And I'd like to point out, Heffernan's a super smart guy, professor emeritus at the University of Missouri, but he and Breimeyer were really kind of voices in the wilderness. They were not listened to. I mean, these were sort of, I don't want to say fringe figures, but they were marginal figures in this world of ag economics. In some ways, my sense was reading the book, 
these were people because of what they were writing and saying and the depth of their work, they were marginalized. Yes. They weren't allowed to be part of the mainstream of thought. That's right. Because most land-grant universities, I'm a graduate of one of these, they, they're just focused on studying how to facilitate the big industry, you know, how to come up with new technologies to cram more chickens into a barn or make them get fatter on less feed, which has utility, but they're not studying these other questions. And yes, people like Breimeyer and Heffernan are marginalized for what they were saying until around 2010 when everything they said was borne out and had come true. And, and the toxic effects of this consolidation was so rampant that even the federal government had to start paying attention to it. Even the USDA started talking about this stuff. But they're so powerful, the Tysons and these other companies together, there are two stories of battles in this book. One battle is in Iowa, and one battle is with the Obama administration. And the battle in Iowa, I mean, it's just... You also wrote, I could say, you're, you're, I will say, folks who have not read this book, you're a really good writer, um, that the battle in Iowa is like suspenseful. Who's going to win the war if you don't know the history? But the Attorney General Tom Miller, this guy Eric Tabor, confronting um, Smithfield and confronting Tyson around the hog farmers and trying to save a way of life, it's, a, it's really a very compelling battle. Yeah. And, and the hog farming, again, is this incredible kind of petri dish of all this stuff because it used to be defined by independent business people and then it got taken over by these vertically integrated firms. Tom Miller and his staff saw this stuff happening in the 1990s. And I just think they are an example of one of the very, very few regulators in the United States that has actually worked to stop this trend and to curb the market power of these firms to even a small degree. Tom Miller sued to stop Smithfield from basically buying up a huge swath of all these Iowa farms. He sued to stop the deal. He basically sued to stop vertical integration. He said, meat packers should not own the livestock. We're not going to become like chicken companies. And he made just a choice to fight. Now, Smithfield uh, beat him down and uh, not surprisingly had buildings full of attorneys that fought and fought for years and Tom Miller's team saw they were going to lose, and they settled the case. But even with, I'm sorry, I gave away the end of the chapter, but it's still a great read. I highly recommend to everybody <laughs> that you buy the book. But um, at, they, they signed a settlement with Smithfield, which was then kind of extended to Tyson and Cargill and other firms, that codified real rights for farmers and more market transparency. And by the way, I mean, the stuff that the American Meat Institute will just go tooth and nail to stop is like farmers have a right to talk to their lawyers about contracts. I mean, that's the kind of socialist radicalism that these people are fighting tooth and nail to stop in Washington. And Tom Miller created a, some degree of transparency for these contracts and created more rights for farmers, for example, to work with one another without being uh, the threat of being put out of business. And just because one... One regulator was willing to fight. These farmers in Iowa now do have actual concrete rights that chicken farmers in, in Arkansas, for example, do not have. Fast forward to 2010, we saw a very different story kind of play out with the Obama administration. You know, these are people that came into office with a very strong rhetoric of change. And, you know, Obama campaigned in Iowa to the left of Hillary Clinton, saying, you know, we're going to take back the Department of Ag, we're going to fight these big companies. 
And it appeared that there was actually like this real effort uh, for reform in the beginning. I mean, there were these series of workshops around the country where you had the Attorney General Eric Holder sitting right next to Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture. Big stuff. I'm telling you, the meat lawyers sitting next to me in the audience were nervous. I mean, it looked like big change was going to happen. But over time, the meat lobby began to chip away at this effort. The tens of millions of dollars you line out that these companies spent, Tyson spending the most to stop them from reforming the industry, even, even minutely, even marginally. Yeah. So this was all in one year. I mean, they spent something like $10 million. And by the way, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's what registered lobbyists had to report to the clerk's office. And and I'm so naive. I don't know how you spend 10 million bucks on lobbyists in Washington. I mean, is this like all meals, or is it just paying people to walk up and down the halls of Congress? I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was like tremendously effective at turning the tide in Congress against the Obama administration. All of a sudden, these these efforts to encourage transparency in the market, to promote competition, to restrain the power of monopolistic companies, all of a sudden that it became somehow like anti rural America and because of the message these meat industry lobbyists were, were promoting. And look, I mean, it's it, it's all in there. They, they were having these meetings where Tom Vilsack's team was just started cooling the temperature, pulling back, uh, negotiating with themselves, and they ultimately s took their foot off the pedal and relented, and, and, and the effort dissipated in, into nothing. They, they won a very few uh, small groups of concessions at the end in 2011. I mean, one new rule and then a few voluntary guidelines, basically. It was a shell of what they had proposed. And I'd like to point out, one of the things that amazes me is the meat lobby is is arguing now. I mean, they're, they're trying to do these backdoor deals with the Appropriations Committee today to, to further kill any antitrust authority that the USDA might have to, to, to permanently ban this stuff. So, so the effort continues, and uh, they, they don't stop on this stuff, the meat lobby. And it's the power of politics. I mean, you talk about when, when, uh, when uh, Don Tyson passed away and, and the eulogy was given by Bill Clinton. Um, was very close to the Tysons, and that was a part of the battle in Iowa that Obama took on when he was senator in that in in the primary, and the farmers bought into Obama because he was being the anti-Tyson right at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the Clintons had had this very close relationship with the Tysons spanning back decades. I interviewed the guy who put up the money to help Clinton run for the first time for Congress in in Northwest Arkansas. He was Joe Fred Starr, sat on the board of Tyson Foods. And it's, it's, it's remarkable to see. I don't understand, frankly, why the meat lobby is as effective as it is in Washington, because they're selling a message that is not really that popular. Like pro-consolidation, anti-choice, uh, uh, having the power to abuse farmers doesn't seem like a natural like stump speech to me. But they are able to, to sell this, and, and it works. I have some thoughts about that. We'll talk about that after we get to the audience here. Why don't you all jump up to the mic and say your names and the mic's back there, the mic's back there and uh, just give us your name and your question. Go ahead. Yeah. In the mic, yeah. Sure. Hi, I'm uh, Julie Goldner. I'm the Maryland organizer for Food and Water Watch. 
And I just wanted to give folks um, a way to engage with this issue locally, and then uh, we'll get your thoughts about that. Um, thank you for coming, Christopher Leonard, and thanks, Mark, for hosting this. And then I had a question as well, so I've got two parts. Um, we uh, introduced, Food and Water Watch introduced uh, some legislation last session called the Poultry Fair Share Act. And that was um, legislation that was meant to address the same issues that you're talking about here in Maryland. So in Maryland, we have uh, Purdue is the company that has the stranglehold on the Eastern Shore. Um, there's three other large poultry companies as well, but Purdue's by far the largest. Um, and they produce an enormous amount of chicken manure every year from all these chickens on the Eastern Shore, about 1.5 billion pounds of manure. Um, and this is ending up uh, as agricultural runoff into the Chesapeake Bay, and we're seeing huge, huge dead zones in the bay that's killing the all aquatic life. Um, on top of that, you know, Purdue is also engaging in the same type of horrible contracts with you know, their growers that you were discussing um, you know, that Tyson does. So basically they have this really unique relationship where, you know, they own the birds, they own the feed, they own the process, but their, their contract growers are left um, to be responsible for the chicken manure. And so another important thing about the Poultry Fair Share Act, which we introduced, is that it's a per bird fee on Purdue and the three other large chicken companies. And that puts the responsibility for the waste squarely back on the companies and off the shoulders of these contract growers. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, and I also wanted folks to know that we have a petition right outside these doors. We have over 2,000 people who have signed it, um, asking legislators to support legislation like the Poultry Fair Share Act. We're obviously going to need a lot more signatures to convince legislators that this is something they should do something about. Um, and we, uh, for folks who are listening, we have um, online presence, foodandwaterwatch.org forward slash Maryland. We have a Food and Water Watch Maryland Facebook page, and we're also on Twitter, uh, FWW Maryland. Um, and please come and talk to me after this is over if you want to get more involved. So wanted to get your thoughts on something like the Poultry Fair Share Act. And then my second part, the question is, We've gotten, I know, this is a lot. Um, <laughs> we've gotten a lot of support from individuals for the legislation. It seems kind of like a no-brainer to a lot of folks that I've talked to. But I've also um, encountered some folks who say, well, we should just stop buying chicken from Purdue or these large companies. You, could, you should vote with your dollars. Um, and I agree that that's very important. I wouldn't buy Purdue or eat it unless there was a zombie apocalypse and it was literally the last thing left. But I was wondering if you could address what you feel is the importance of people engaging in policy um, and urging their legislators to ensure accountability as well as voting with their dollars. Yeah, that's great. And I do want to say yesterday I was going through, I finally got an open records request answered by the USDA that I had submitted like a year and a half ago or something. And it was all these emails going back and forth within the USDA as they were killing this rule. And they talked about Food and Water Watch a lot. And they didn't, I, I won't say what they were saying about the group, but like it was, it was clearly having an effect on the debate. So it was really interesting. So um, you're bringing up a great question. You can, first of all, 
the only way to effectively boycott Purdue is to stop eating chicken. And the only effective way to boycott the companies that control the meat industry today is to quit eating meat. I mean, they make the vast majority of unlabeled meat we eat at nursing homes, cafeterias, restaurants, you name it. And I don't... First of all, it's a great thing to steer your food dollars toward local producers that are producing food, or even large producers who are making food in a way that you agree with. That's a great thing. But I don't think that we should make it incumbent upon all every consumer to shop at their local farmer's market for all of their meat. That's just not a realistic option for a lot of people. And so for that reason, we do need a broad policy approach to this. And I think the analogy is, you know, 100 years ago, we had the Standard Oil Company that had a monopolistic hold over our, our oil industry. And the reaction back then wasn't like boycott oil or buy oil from a mom and pop. It was break up the monopoly and reinstore competition to the business again. And that's why you do need a broad public policy approach to this problem. The problem is it's, it takes a long time to do that. It takes a lot of public will. It's a hard fight. You know it's a long, hard fight. And and so it's it's sort of a hard thing to get your head around. But so I think it's the, the, the double-pronged thing of consumers being empowered to spend their money where they believe in it, but also knowing that this does have to happen at the ballot box if real change is going to happen at all. That's right. And what we are going to do is we have, um, it's almost 8 o'clock, so we don't want to last it too long, so, so Chris has time to uh, sign some books outside uh, before it's over. But so I'm going to ask you all to be a little pithy and with your questions so we can have a chance for him to sign books when this is over. Go ahead, sir. My name's Peter Michaels, and I'm a rancher from Montana, cattle rancher. And uh, you mentioned something about the, the lobby in Washington, and, and it really wasn't that popular and all. The problem is, is we have to give $1 per head to what's called the beef checkoff. We fought this because the beef checkoff money all goes to an outfit that's been designated by law, uh, by USDA, to spend that money supposedly to uh, promote uh, uh, beef and health and so forth. That outfit's called the National Cattlemen's and Beef Association. They have nothing to do with us ranchers and us people who produce that, what we think is pretty good beef. And they collect from us 80 to 90 million dollars a year to essentially do us in. And uh, that's a problem. The US Supreme Court, we took it to all the way and we lost. And, uh, and here we are. The other comment that I'm, I'll make, I do also know something about the chicken industry. And there are some big chicken producers that under contract, you know, million birds a year, million and a half birds a year, uh, are really against this system. And they've testified to that to that effect. The part is, as you didn't mention, is the, is the health part of, of this raising these chickens. And I'm here to say that I could take 100 consumers into those chicken houses and half of those consumers would never eat chicken again. It's that bad. Thank you, sir. Maybe, yeah. you, maybe you can touch base <clears throat> on what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. And you cover the cattle piece in your book. Yes. Um, <coughs> short answer is the cattle industry is sort of the last bastion of independent producers. These companies have never been able to totally take over the cattle business, but they're working their hardest to do it now through contracts and they've locked up the sort of buyer end of it. And yeah, the NCBA is kind of a fundamentally 
conflicted group because they supposedly represent ranchers and the meatpackers who buy the cattle. So there's a fundamental kind of disconnect there. And they've really fought a lot of these reforms. My name is Diane Macklin. I thank you for this work because we need journalists to bring us information so that we can make um, choices. I will um, say that I struggle with the idea of um, Don Tyson as a genius because if he was such a genius, he would be able to create a model that helped other people to stay in business. But I, you talked about the cheap um, meat and I feel that one cost of cheap meat, because everything has a cost, is that life is no longer sacred. What can you identify as a few of the other costs of cheap meat? Thank you. Wow. Um, so I'm sorry, your question like, yeah, I just, um, by cost of cheap meat, do you mean, what do you mean? Because you said that the one thing that, um, vertical integration is allowed as cheap meat, which has actually been able to increase um, yeah. sales like for um, fast food. So what are the costs, not exactly the profits, but the costs of cheap meat? Yeah, totally. So I mean, those are so manifold, it's hard to even get into them. Massive pollution from the factory farms is one cost that is like borne by society. There's the cost of public school systems in small towns where, you know, the local workforce has been replaced by an immigrant workforce and the schools soak up the uh, added cost of teaching the kids English, et cetera. Um, the cost of broken businesses, uh, and by this I'm referring to farms in rural towns. I mean, I saw it myself of farmers being put out of business. Um, the cost of foodborne illness, which I think the business has done a very good job of providing safe meat, to be honest, but they're less so now because they have so much power that they're ramping up production while cutting back food safety inspections. So, I mean, you could literally write books about the massive costs of, of, of the system. And I do want to say that just because I say Don Tyson is a genius doesn't mean like I agree with what he was doing, but the guy was super, super smart, and he built something tremendous, and it wasn't necessarily within his sphere of responsibility even to think about the broader social impacts is something that we're grappling with today. I just have to agree to disagree because I do feel a genius is someone who can respect that. Right on. So we have literally like five to ten minutes left. Okay. So. Hello, my name is Penny Troutner and my question is this. I understand that on Maryland's eastern shore there used to be more diversity in the farming industry and now it's it, there's a lot more in the way of chicken farms and I was wondering if that there was any relationship between the big ag chickens and, and that loss of diversity, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the case, then why that would have happened. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm not, look, uh, to be honest, I, I did all my reporting in the Midwest, and I know a lot about that area, and I really don't know much about the Eastern Shores uh, poultry business, so that's up front. But I do know that across the board, uh, diversity is sort of the enemy of, the industrialized food system. It's, you know, you specialize and enlarge. That's the whole nature of the game. And, you know, you used to have diversified farms, and then in the 60s we started changing that to where you're in one segment of the business or another. You're a giant chicken farmer or you're a giant corn producer or you're a giant soybean producer. You no longer have the mix because industrialization is all about specialization and then large scale. 
Hi, my name is Erin. Um, thank you, Mr. Steiner and Mr. Leonard. Um, and my question is this, um, Mr. Leonard, in your um, description of the way that these industries developed, I heard you use words like ruthlessness and power relations. And my question is, I wanted to know if in your research you developed a level of sensitivity for the most ignored victims of these industries, which are the animals themselves. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And um, I'll just say up front, sensitivity is not my strong suit. But <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so the animals are a critical part of this, okay? And, and I want to say something at the outset. I really wanted to write about the humans. I felt that we've had a lot of great literature about the animals. Jonathan Saffron Four, Eating Animals, um, another book, Dominion, I think, that's really focused on this. And I wanted to write about the economic exploitation of the people and the destruction of rural economies. But this issue is it, it's very important. And yes, I have sensitivity to these animals. And I'll tell you, for me personally, most of my concerns are focused on the hog industry. Hogs are very intelligent, very sensitive animals, and the way they're raised today is, is only the execution of a business plan that was hatched in the 1960s and 70s, cramming them into barns like chickens, basically. And it's not how hogs are meant to live at all, and it takes a lot of effort and technology to make them live like that. And there are troubling ethical aspects of that that really bother me. Um, you know... I am not a vegan and I'm not a vegetarian and I, I eat meat and I'm okay with killing chickens to eat them. I don't eat uh, beef or pork, but that's, that's kind of irrelevant to be honest. So I, I, I guess my short answer to your question is I can get where you're coming from if you've got strong animal welfare concerns about this system because it is certainly not built for animal welfare. It's built for maximizing production, and the animals have become factory widgets, and that's the way it operates. I am coming down on the side right now of thinking it is okay to eat meat. I think people have been eating meat for a long time, and I hope you can kind of tell I'm really conflicted. Like, I can't just sit here and glibly say it's okay to do it. I mean, chickens, chicken houses are not pretty places, and the animals don't have good lives. But at the same time, kids and families have a relatively affordable source of protein that can make them healthier. So I think everybody just needs to decide where they come down on this issue of killing animals to eat them. I do think there is a lot that can be done relatively easily to improve the living conditions of animals in factory farms. It's not like rocket science. And I know companies that are experimenting with giving birds more room, for example, so they can actually like run and roost and do all this stuff, but still growing on a large scale. There's a lot you can do with hogs to make their conditions more humane, and I think that that should be done. I think the system today has turned a complete blind eye to animal welfare, especially in the hog business, and that some of that stuff needs to be factored back in. At the very least, some of the stuff needs to be fact factored back into the system. Thank you. I'm sure you're not satisfied at all with that answer. Well, thank you for your answer. Um, I'm glad to hear that you developed this conflict. And um, if you'd like to talk about that further, I'd love to talk after the event. Thank it's you. probably just going to make me feel really bad, but we'll, I'll talk to you about it later. Sure. Good evening. Chris Marshall with Baltimore Greenworks. Mark, thank you for facilitating so well tonight. And Chris, for coming to Baltimore and telling this story to us. 
I had a question. I think I wanted to expand on that a little bit further to understand who you are now and to hear a little bit more about your own personal story and how uncovering some of these facts have affected you and maybe contrast who you are now to who you were before you started this personally. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I've never, ever been asked that question. Um, I'm a lot more tired now because I have a nine-month-old daughter I didn't have when I was writing this book, and I'm exhausted. Um, to me, the main lessons I've taken from this have to do with power, and um, I do not, I've gained a sense that our society is not inevitable. How things are today are not inevitable. I mean, I think I, when I was starting this, I kind of thought meat is produced the way it is today just because. It's most efficient. This is how the industry has evolved. This is the way things are. And then I really dug into it and saw that it was just absolutely a few people that made a few key decisions and made this thing the way it is today because they wanted it to be that way and it served their self-interest and they got away with it. And so I have much less of a sense that things are inevitable. And so when I look out at the world today and power structures and businesses and things like this, I, I think I've gained kind of a new sense that this is really just a construction of, of humans and it can be changed or affirmed if it's working for us. And look, I'll be honest, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm a little bit more down on the ability of government to solve a lot of these fundamental problems than I was before. And I don't want to say I'm cynical, but I was uh, blown away by how much power uh, lobbyists have in Washington. And so other than that, I think I'm pretty much the same person uh, as I was when I started the book. I would say that one of the most <clears throat> stirring parts of the book for me was just when you watch the power both in Iowa and in Washington, D.C., and the power of the industry growing that they had to push back every regulator, all the legislators, lawsuits by attorney general, attorneys general. I mean, that was it was a stunning part of the book. Mm -hmm. it just laid all right out there in terms of the money and what they did, who they influenced, how they influenced it. So that's I can see why that would make you begin to question that. Yeah, it's jarring, and I'm not cynical or apathetic or anything like that at all. But I'm I have a new appreciation for the power of money. I do want to say, I was at this like off-the-record small gathering with a bunch of Congress people recently. And like, it was um, an eye-opener. I mean, these were people sitting here saying like, oh, God, we're so powerless. What can we do about this? And I'm like, you're Congress. What do you, what do you mean, what can you do about it? You're in charge, right? Oh, God, that's but bad. It's not like that. And money is, I mean, I feel so naive, but money is really powerful. And I guess I have a new appreciation for that today. Hi, I'm Don Robertson. I'm the founder of the local chapter of Earth Save Baltimore. And I'd just like to give people the opportunity to uh, uh, know about our, uh, our group. It's a great support group for people who want to opt out of this system altogether and shift entirely away from eating animal products, or at least move more in that direction of a plant-based diet. The UN has been telling us since 2006 that 
livestock operations are causing more climate changing greenhouse gases than all forms of transportation combined, about one and a half times as much. So as individuals, that's the most potent thing we can do to help reverse climate change, get away from eating animal products as much as we can. Uh, it, it may take people some time. It took me about a year to do that myself. But it's the Earth Save Baltimore group. We have three different uh, uh, meetings each month. One meeting in Owings Mills with a speaker on the last Saturday of every month. And two, two meetup groups, a vegetarian meetup group that meets in Columbia and a vegan meetup group that meets at Mr. Chan's in uh, Pikesville. We get nice large crowds for those groups. And uh, the difference that we can make for our personal health, for planetary health, we can also impact world hunger tremendously because we can feed about five times as many people or more if we cut animals completely out of the meat, out of the food production process and eat crops directly ourselves instead of cycling 12 pounds of corn and oats and soybeans through a cow and then eating one pound, one pound of meat that that produces. So uh, I just want to let people know it's earthsavebaltimore.org. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I just, as we close out here and let you get down to signing some books, um, I, I'd like to just read a short piece of your book, just get to give people a sense. Great. Here, uh, of what um, you were talking about. Um, you, you talk about the, the, the in Arkansas how all these studies were shown that 89% of the counties in which Tyson operates are the worst off counties in the entire state economically. And you go on to say this finding and other findings about what happens to the economy of places where people live suggests that Harold Brimer's, we talked about earlier, warning back in the 1960s has come to pass. The income pattern drawn by Tyson's system doesn't reflect productivity, it reflects power. When one company owns the machinery of production in a town, it can keep the lion's share of the profits. When one company buys the vast majority of its competitors, it doesn't have to compete with, with higher wages to retain workers or farmers. This means many parts of rural America can look like, like to Arkansas if they want to see their future. And there's much more to say here, but I don't want to say it now. But that's the kind of the power the book brings you to that I encourage folks to pick up and read. And Chris, it's been great to meet you. Thanks for coming to Baltimore. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And I do want to before I drop everything, I want to thank some people here before we run off. Yeah, thank Sorry. you. I do want to thank um, the folks at Baltimore Greenworks uh, for letting us be part of this. They're partnering with us here tonight as part of the Sustainable Speaker Series here at the Enoch Pratt Library, uh, Food and Water Watch, and of course the uh, Asti Coast Keeper uh, for working with us here in the Mark Steiner Show and Center for Emerging Media, and Enoch Pratt for putting this out to the public. And uh, oh, did you have something? No. Are, you, are you standing there to say something? No. Yeah, you. Me. Yeah. You have to end, but I can, we can cut that and put it at the end of the thing anyway, but just something very quick. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so first, uh, I'd like to thank you for coming. Um, I was at another meeting and ran to catch the end of this, uh, but I wanted to ask you a quick question, and that is, do you, know, do you have any ideas about how we can galvanize public opinion to be able to form small groups to do the kind of things that lobbyists do only nobody really helps people to do it. And icons like you, from where I'm standing, is there any idea you have about how 
small groups can form in this town and another town and another town, and eventually we can uh, try to exert the same kind of power that the lobbyists do. It's not going to be the same. We don't have the money, but at least we can uh, in, in, infuse the passion into people to make people get more involved in the struggle. That's really what I wanted to ask. I mean, yeah, first of all, just talking about these things, raising awareness, reading about them, sharing uh, is, is a great way to start. I do kind of recommend plugging into existing groups instead of trying to build it from the ground up all alone. It's helpful to, you know, meet with people, but also plug your energies into existing groups that are fighting this or, or, or working on this, I guess I should say. But look, it's a fight. I mean... Food and Water Watch is a big group on this stuff. There's another group called Rafi USA that works on this stuff. And they've really put a lot of time in and have a lot of institutional knowledge on this. So I think if you if you want to to get involved, that I would recommend uh, the kind of thing you're talking about, but plugging also into existing groups. And you can probably, before you leave tonight, Julie Goldner's here from Food and Water Watch, who is the organizer for Baltimore, to spend some time with her and their table, see what they're doing. And other groups are here to, to, to work on that stuff as well, green work. So I would sit and just talk with them when, when this is over. And I encourage everybody to go outside and get a Chris Leonard book and have it signed and go home and have a good read. Chris Leonard, thank you so much. All right. Much. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it was enjoyable. Thank you. I really appreciate it.